Good morning. Glad to see you guys here today. Uh, at least some people are not yet on vacation, it would appear. Um, although I'm ready for mine. <laughs> so, if you have your Bibles, please open up again to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to breakneck pace. Doing one more verse today. It is possible to go slower. Um, for those of you that are wondering, we can go phrase by phrase. Um, there are people that have done that. Today, we are going to be talking about our glorious inheritance in providence. Let's read together the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to us. Father, I pray that as we begin today to look at your word in a preached format and in study, Lord Father, the things that we have just sung and the things that we will sing, Father, would resonate in our hearts as we look at the good, gracious, and glorious things you've given us. Father, let us not pass over this inheritance or, or the planning that you have done in such a way that it's just assumed. But Father, we, like Paul, would rejoice in what you have done. Father, I pray for your blessing on this time. Father, I pray that you would give me the words to speak from your Holy Spirit. And Father, that we would exalt the Son in this time. Praise in Jesus' name. So, we ended last week with Paul's eternal perspective, right? We got a great picture of what it looks like for Paul's mindset as he is writing this letter. Under house arrest, he's still concerned about eternity, right? Whereas most people in house arrest, people that are under lock and key are not going to be concerned with what's to come. They're concerned about where they are. Paul has an eternal perspective in mind. 
And so last week, when we end with that, we saw, too, um, a big thesis uh, for the entire book, right, in verse 10. The thesis for this book is wrapped up in eternity. All of eternity is wrapped up in verse 10, right? Well, our world really struggles with eternal perspective, I think. We saw last week in Matt's introduction about how broken the world is. It's not just broken, it's, it's self-centered. I think the self-centeredness is what drives a lot of the brokenness. I mean, the world is so caught up in what is going on now and what is affecting them now. I, for instance, my high school reunion, 10 years, supposed to come up. Uh, well, I, I guess it was supposed to be like three months ago, but no one wants to plan it. Uh, so now they're scrambling on Facebook to try to get something together. Then you've got all of these people who are like, are we doing tickets? Because because I don't want to pay for something that somebody else is just going to take advantage of and not pay their fair share. You haven't seen these people for 10 years. It's a reunion. It's a party. And you're concerned about getting shorted 10 bucks. I'm going to be happy to see you too. All right? Probably not going to make this. All right. Um, despite the fact that things break all the time around us, we still, what, go out and invest our money in more things that are going to get broken. Rather than in a place, as Christ tells us to, where it will never be stolen or rust away. I think about another example we're so caught up in what's going now. We exchange purity or marital faithfulness for the immediate sating of our perverted appetites with a, it will only be this one time or that midnight screen time. At home still, we disregard the promises of God when it comes to the proper priority and instruction of our families at home and in the church body just for one more hour of TV or just this one game because we know better or it's not that bad. We just don't get it. We need more of Paul in our life. We need more of this eternal perspective in our life where we are constantly looking ahead to the future. Our mind inhabits eternity. If we can stay there, I think we'll start to grasp some of the beauty of what Paul is describing for us here. And we're going to talk about this inheritance today. It's inheritance that won't come to the future. And so if we don't have an eternal perspective in mind, then we're not looking forward to anything. We have this great inheritance waiting for us, and if we don't keep an eternal perspective, then what are we looking at? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones refers to Ephesians as it's one of the so-called church epistles. And in it, the apostle gives us his richest teaching with regard to the nature and the character of the Christian church. The church is an illustration, the supreme illustration in many ways and in time of God's gigantic cosmic plan to restore harmony in every realm and every sphere. If the church is about this verse 10, if the church is about this eternal perspective, if it's about uniting all things in Christ, then we have to have the mind of Christ as we look to God's will and the greater biblical eternal plan. So with that, let's, uh, let's get our bearings. We look at verse 10, and it says that he's going to unite all things in Christ, right? Well, why go on? If that's the plan, then let's do the plan. Why should we continue on. But Paul continues in this run-on sentence from 1 to 14. 
right? He doesn't put a period. He continues on as if you can't stop him. He continues in order to emphasize that the blessings belong equally to Jewish and Gentile believers. And you're like, oh, he could have done that later. He does a couple times. He's going to do that several times. But he he includes it in this opening run-on as part of the doxology. The fact that not only is God going to unite all things in Christ, but he's doing it already. And he goes on to continue these blessings in detail for us. And you're going to see this come up particularly in the latter half of chapter 2, probably next year. Um, But right now we'll see the initial kickoff here of this theme of reconciliation, particularly between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so we've had a look at the plan in general, verse 10, and now we get to see some of the details, starting in verse 11. And something I want to make clear here is that uh, we, I hope you have been reading all of this and kind of processing big chunks, because as we move slowly, it's easy to miss the bigger picture. I'm trying to pull from that bigger picture a lot. And here we see the beginning of a new argument. This is the third part of the first section. And here you're going to identify pronouns. I hope you did in Renovate Us, for those of you that don't know what that is. Um, On the city, if you don't know what that is, you should talk to me afterwards. On the city, which is our church social media kind of platform. Um, I don't know why I did that. Our platform, we we have what's called Renovate Us. And it is kind of like a setup guide, walkthrough, preparatory mechanism page where you kind of walk through the sermon points with us. Uh, on Thursday or Friday, we usually put up uh, Renovate Us, and basically what it is is you just kind of work through each questions, and it's going to be about the text. It's going to try to give you some overall picture. It's going to give you some idea. Kind of get the ground wet is the idea, so that when you come to the sermon, this pouring of water doesn't just run off, uh, but the ground is already kind of ready to soak up some of what's coming out. So on Renovate Us, uh, one of the goals this week was to identify the pronouns that we have here. So we have a lot of in hymns. We've already talked about those. But now we have we. We have we's, we have you's, we have ours. In verse 11 and 12, Paul is speaking of the Jews. When he says we, he's saying, I, a Jew, and the other Jews, Israel and its heritage, we, not Gentiles. When he gets to 13, he's going to say, you also. Who's he talking to? Well, from our introduction, right, the Ephesians who were faithful, Right? So now it's the Gentiles. So we, we, you, now in verse 14, our. Our. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time today talking about that unification aspect because when Matt gets to 13 and 14, uh, he's going to be talking a lot about the sealing act. Uh, but this idea of the unifying is, is absolutely fundamental in 11 through 14. So with that, let us begin. Our first point today is that Jesus Christ is the source of, of our divine inheritance. Jesus Christ is the source of our divine inheritance. Verse 11 in our text for today. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So our first section, in him, this is clearly referring to Jesus Christ. And he is the ground and the source of our divine inheritance. In him, in verse 11 and in 13, you're going to see Christ emphasized as the reconciler. And why not? Verse 10 has already set him up for this, right? In the great unification that's going to happen in Christ. He's the great reconciler. 
And thematically, it's in this uniting agent of verse 10. We see that Jesus is the one in whom all of this uniting is going to happen, just like Paul said, right? But theologically and even practically, apart from Jesus, the only ultimate and eternal thing a person can receive from God is condemnation. That, that is the only option outside of an inheritance. Your inheritance will be condemnation. And so if you are not in him, then you won't receive the inheritance. If you are in him, you will receive an inheritance. So it is true um, when we talk about this idea of inheritance that God gives grace to all men, right? We would call that common grace. The fact that we get to live in America and God bless America, despite everything that's going on, we're still a great free country, right? We just celebrated that again yesterday. That's a grace, a common grace to believers and unbelievers alike, right? But as we've already seen, his spiritual blessings are given only to those who are in him, right? Every spiritual blessing comes in Christ. We saw from earlier in chapter 1. So it is true that, you know, good things happen to good and bad people. Bad things happen to good and bad people. But true spiritual blessing only comes to those who are in him. And so if Jesus Christ is our source of divine inheritance, we find these blessings in him. Now, something we like to try to do as we preach is to help you in your Bible study methods. And so along that line, I want to ask a question. Uh, suppose something happens to you. Any life event, doesn't matter what it is. Suppose something happens to you. What questions do you immediately tend to ask? I mean, it's like an instinct, right? Your brain's going to fire something off. For example, flat tire. Why me? Why me? Flat tire. Bank account overdrawn. That's your immediate response. How did this happen? Right? How about your kid blows out a diaper when it's time to go? Why now? Right? Finally, you stub your toe. What did I do to deserve this? Right? These are the questions that come to mind, at least for me. Now, when you're doing Bible study, these natural responses and instincts are a good tool. Right? When you find in him, how are we placed in him? How did this happen to me? Right? These questions are good things to ask. So we find ourselves in him we have obtained. How do we get in him? How do we get placed in Christ? If, if these spiritual blessings only come to those who are in him, how do I know whether I'm in him? How, how do I know how that happened? I think Romans 6 is a great answer for us. It says, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also in the likeness of his resurrection. That's what it means to be united in him. That's what it means to be placed in him. 1 John 3.2 says, We know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he really is. Romans 8, 29, we will finally and fully become conformed to the image of his son. That's what it means to be in him, to be conformed in his likeness, to walk this process of sanctification as you are set apart for holy use, as you are made more 
and more like Jesus every day. That's what it means to be in him. Certainly, again, this particular verse is speaking of the Jews. But you see the Gentiles here are brought into it in verse 14. So you also and are. So think now, if you can, from the perspective of a new Gentile convert. All right? So you are hopefully one of those faithful people in Ephesus. You're a new believer. You just heard the gospel not long ago, and you are now a believer. Yeah. Think about what's happening in your head as you try to process this massive life change. I mean, for all of history, God's people have only been the Jews. God's people have only been the Jews. So they're trying to get the lay of the land now. I'm, I'm, I'm a Roman citizen. Am I accepted in this? Is it okay that I'm here in this church? Is it okay that I'm a part of this body now? What does that look like? I mean, think about how, how massive of a cultural shift this is. Uh, only a few of us may have been here around segregation. Um, I certainly was not. read about it a lot. Think about that first time a black United States citizen is allowed to drink from the white fountain. Everyone's watching. Most people still aren't happy with it. That's the kind of cultural shift that we're looking at here. I mean, it's the same for early America. What happens at the end of the Revolutionary War? All of a sudden, I'm now an American citizen. What does that mean? What does that mean? Who, Who am I? What is my identity? How does it just shift overnight? How does it just shift because the last gun has been fired? I mean, it's going to be true for whatever America becomes, all right? It felt like a a couple Fridays ago that there was a massive cultural shift. What does that mean? What's the new lay of the land? What's required? What do I do? I'd even go so far to say it's the same for a new member of the church. Some of you are visitors here today, and you're still saying, I don't really know what this place does. The floor bounces, um, so I'm here, all right? It's different. It's new. It's saying, this is where I'm at now. What does it look like? So think from the viewpoint of the Ephesian converts. John Calvin says this, It tended not a little to confirm the faith of the Ephesian converts, that he associated them with himself and the other believers who might be said to be the firstborn in the church. It's as if he had said, The condition of all godly persons is the same with yours. For we who were first called by God, owe our acceptance to his eternal election. And so now he's showing that from first to last, all have obtained salvation by free grace because they have been freely adopted according to eternal election. A beautiful picture of these Ephesians being encouraged in these first 14 verses as they see these great blessings that God gives us. As they see that initial just proclamation of salvation from, from the all parts of the Trinity. And then at the close of it, he says, and you are now with us. It is our inheritance. You are just as good as we are. This is a little long, but I, I, I love it from, from uh, Dr. Jones. 
It says, the apostle tells us in a particularly interesting and entrancing manner, and it becomes the more interesting to us as we remind ourselves of the world as it is, with all of its clashes and its conflicts and divisions and tensions. In the light of biblical truth and against a world background, how wonderful is it to look at this plan of God as it is unfolded by the apostle? At the same time, it is particularly interesting to observe that God's way in Christ is so very different from that which frequently passes as Christianity at the present time, with all of its emphasis on the political and social application of the gospel. God's way of restoring harmony and unity is to produce Christians. And therefore, Paul tells us certain things about the Christian. He gives us a perfect picture of Christianity, as I understand it, so that there is no hope of unity apart from Christianity. There will never be true unity amongst men until men are Christians. There is no conceivable lasting unity and harmony, no hope of restoration to that which God originally made, except as men are made Christians. And we are Christians only as we are in Christ. You want churches to stop burning? You want jobs to be equal? You want homes to be equal? You want black lives to matter? You want aborted babies' lives to matter? You want gay people's lives to matter? If you want people, human beings made in the image of God, to matter, it is only going to happen in in unity and in harmony with Christ. But our world is not in Christ. We are. Go make Christians. So Paul's already praised God for his adoption of believers in verse 5. We have been made sons of God. Well, here in verse 11, he praises God for making believers his heirs. His blessing of being placed in him is a huge blessing. Huge blessing. But what comes with that? An inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance, and naturally an inheritance, particularly our inheritance, is the aspect of salvation which is primarily future, right? It's it's sometime in the future. You don't have your inheritance now. I mean, mean, we, we were elected and predestined before the world and time even existed. We have been redeemed in this present age, and we will receive our completed inheritance in the ages to come when we enter fully into the Father's eternal heavenly kingdom. But he doesn't say will, he says have, right? We have an inheritance. When something in the future was so certain that it could not possibly fail to happen, the Greeks would often speak as if it had already occurred. We do that too, but even just to give you a specific example, in chapter 2 you're going to see him say that he has seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's already done. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places. They're dwelling eternally with the Lord. Our dwelling eternally with the Lord was just as certain as if we were already in heaven. So you have this already, not yet, aspect that we talk about so much with Paul, right? Well, how has this happened? How, how did this happen to me? How did I receive an inheritance? Well, how do we have such a status and such a future? Now, from a divine perspective, obviously it's according to God's sovereign purposes. But from a human perspective, we have believed. Right? We're going to talk about those two over the next two weeks. 
<coughs> so, how does this happen? Um, we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture a lot today. We're kind of given ambiguous ideas in this verse, uh, in him. Inheritance, predestined, elected, purpose, working, right? These are big theological concepts. Uh, so we're going to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So we'll be jumping around a lot today. A good majority of them will be on the screen for you, uh, but not necessarily all of them. So how does this happen? How do we have such a status in the future? How do we have, currently, an inheritance? First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom. Remember that mystery? The kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's how we have it. That's how we have it. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has caused us to be born again to an inheritance. Well, that explains that. But what is the inheritance? How many of you have received an inheritance before? Really? I have. Um, but apparently it won't relate well. Um, an inheritance doesn't come until a very specific event happens. Death, right? You know, certainly, at least I would hope, in most cases, you're not looking forward to that, that death for the inheritance, although I imagine there are in-laws. I love my in-laws. They don't listen to podcasts, so I'm good. Um, I don't want them to die. We don't want people to die to get an inheritance, right? But likewise, on earth, our inheritance only happens in the future. This inheritance happens now. In life, on both sides. And it's guaranteed in the future as well. So what is this inheritance? It's not just a big check that we get one day. It's something we have now. So what is it? It's yet another of the amazing and magnificent blessings with which the Father has blessed us in the Son. Every spiritual blessing, we can't forget that as we move through Ephesians. We can't. Every spiritual blessing has come in Christ. So, we inherit every promise that God has ever made. That's what your inheritance is. We inherit every promise that God has ever made. Peter tells us that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and to godliness and has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in 2 Peter chapter 1. I mean, how do we do with our promises? People make promises all the time. 
it's just human nature to make promises. I want to ensure in your mind that something is going to happen. I promise I will take out the trash before I go to bed, after I watch the TV, and maybe have a bowl of cereal. I probably won't take out the trash, all right? It's human nature to make promises, but it's also human nature to break promises all the time. I mean, governments make and break promises. Advertisers and politicians certainly make and break promises. But employers and employees, preachers and church members, parents and children, husbands and wives, friends and relatives, we all make promises to each other, and they're often broken. Some are made with the best intentions, and some are made in order to deceive and exploit. That certainly happens. But all of us find ourselves both making and receiving promises that, for whatever reason, do not materialize. But this isn't so with God. This is not so with God. We can be eternally thankful that God's promises are not like ours. Every promise he makes, he keeps. Paul says with absolute inclusiveness in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes. This inheritance is incredible. All of the promises of God, he'll keep, and we get. I mean, our every conceivable need is met by God's gracious provision in keeping with his divine promises. Look, we are promised peace, love, grace, wisdom, eternal life, joy, victory, strength, guidance, power, mercy, forgiveness, righteousness, truth, fellowship with God, spiritual discernment, heaven, eternal riches, glory. These all come from God. That's our inheritance. You look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, For all things are yours. The world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Yeah, see, this doesn't come because we're awesome people. We're going to see that in just a second. This doesn't come because you simply get to claim it. But everything that we need and everything that we could really ever want, we are given in Christ. How does this happen? Because we have been made joint heirs with Christ. We are guaranteed possession of everything he possesses. Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He goes on to say later in that chapter in Romans 8, 32, this is just amazing and mind-blowing. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also 
with him graciously give us all things. What else could he give us? He gave us Christ. What more could you give up other than your child? There's no check on earth that could be large enough with enough zeros on it to cover the gift of a child. So if I give you my son, what's a thousand dollars to me? What's a million? What's anything else? He gave us Christ, and he's certainly going to give us everything that comes with that. There's nothing more he could give us that's better than Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is the grounds, he is the source, he is everything that is our inheritance. I know today may have sounded a little earlier, the prosperity gospel. But I'm telling you at the end of the day, your inheritance is Christ. That's what you claim. That's what you speak over your life. That's who you're united with. That's what it means to be in him and to have an inheritance. So what comes with this inheritance? Well, God's careful plans ordained and they preserve our inheritance. God's careful plans ordained and preserve our inheritance. If you move on in verse 11, it says, Having been past predestined according to the purpose of him. A quote from William Hendrickson. One of my commentators doesn't even comment on this. He just drops this quote in there, and it's really good. He says, Neither fate nor human merit determines our destiny. The benevolent purpose that we should be holy and blameless, verse 4. Sons of God, verse 5. Destined to glorify him forever, verses 6, 12, and 14. It is fixed. It's, being, it's, it's part of a larger universe-embracing plan. Not only did God make this plan that includes absolutely all things that ever take place in heaven, on earth, and in hell, past, present, and even the future, pertaining to both believers and unbelievers, to angels and devils, to physical as well as spiritual energies and units of existence, both large and small. He also wholly carries it out. His providence and time is as comprehensive as is his decree from eternity. Everything God wills, everything that God says he will do. He doesn't just make the plan, he carries it out. He's not the architect who draws up a blueprint and sends it out for everyone else to do. He's not the guy that shows up to a job and says, I'm here to help, here's what you should do. I'll supervise. He plans it and he carries it out perfectly. Everything, every aspect of it. That's what God's providence means. What does this mean even more? In verse 5, God has chosen believers because he's predestined them for adoption. Well, here, God has made them his heirs because he has predestined them. Because we are in him as we are in Christ, we are heirs, and he has predestined that. Look at the comparison between these. In verse 5, according to the good pleasure of his will, Verse 11, according to the purpose of the one who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So what can we conclude between these two? The blessing of God's relationship with his people comes at God's joyfully considered initiative. It's not just something that he enjoyed doing. 
Likewise, it's not just something that he does meticulously. It's something that he does joyfully, meticulously. God delighted in your predestination, believer. Hey, look at what Paul does here. Pleasure with the considered nature of that plan, but he, he, he just piles up words when he talks about the considered nature. I mean, just words that emphasize God's meticulous planning and sovereign control are just thrown together. Just thrown together. He says purpose, his work, his counsel, his will. It's not just stylistic. He's not describing pizza as if it is delicious and savory and melty cheese and oily grease. He's not describing pizza. He's describing God. He wants his readers to feel especially privileged. Why? Because of God's careful, meticulous plans. It's not because of our accomplishments. It's because of nothing that we've done. It's because of what God, who effects all things, has done for them. I like the challenge that Martin Lloyd-Jones throws out with this. He says, I emphasize this for good reason, that this elaboration that he's talking about with this piling up of words is a very good test of our appreciation of the Christian faith. He says, Paul cannot say these things without being astonished and amazed at them. He was not merely interested in these things intellectually. He was not a mere lecturer. He was a preacher, an evangelist, a pastor. He cannot regard these things in a merely detached, objective manner. And so when he says we have obtained an inheritance, he is so amazed at the fact that he seems to wonder how it has happened to us. And he gives us the only possible explanation, which is that it is according to the counsel of God's own will. A word seems to fire him, and he sees the whole panorama of salvation in it. God carefully and joyfully planned to make his people his heirs before he did it. This action was neither haphazard nor dependent on anything that they would do to earn it. Calvin says he speaks of him as the sole agent and as doing everything according to his own will so as to leave nothing to be done by man. In no respect, therefore, are men admitted to share in this praise as if they brought anything of their own. God looks at nothing out of himself to move him to elect them. For the counsel of his own will is the only and actual cause of their election. This may enable us to refute the error, or rather the madness, of those who, whenever they are unable to discover the reason of God's works, exclaim loudly against his design. God joyfully, meticulously planned believers' salvation. Move on in 11, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. He plans it and he carries it out. That's what he does. If that doesn't cause you to rejoice, you're missing something. As Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it's a great, great test of your joy, of your faith, of your love for the Christian faith. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a little Christ? 
So, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Briefly, I want to talk about works. What do we mean when we say that God works? Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Works is like an ongoing thing, right? But what does it mean for God to work? I mean, how does he work? I mean, for Pete's sake, he spoke the universe into existence. If speaking does that, then what in the world is him working going to do? What happens when he rolls up his sleeves and gets down to it? That could be a scary thing if all it takes is a word and not just the sun, all the suns, all the stars, all the planets show up. What happens when God rolls up his sleeves and works? Well, the word that we have here uh, translates to us as much as we can in English to be at work, to put forth power to aid and effect. So if God is working all things, he is aiding and effecting. How is he aiding and effecting? Because it's his plan. He's carrying it out, right? He's putting forth power. Let's just look at Ephesians and, and 1.20. It's coming later. That he worked in Christ when he did what? He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The power of resurrection is wrapped up in God's works. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us and in that aiding and affecting to put forth power. You jump to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Everyone knows this one. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all whose energy? His energy. He is the one putting forth power that he powerfully works within me. Acts 1.8, you will receive what? Power. And the Holy Spirit comes upon you. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, listen to this one. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. God is your power. The Father has ordained and is working out his plans. He's affecting it. He's getting it done with Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit. You see a beautiful Trinitarian picture at work in your life as God's plans are carried out in the Son and in the Spirit and in his own affecting and putting forth the power. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 leads me to believe it is the Word of God. And who, according to John, is the Word of God? Jesus. Jesus is at work in you believers. So in him, we have an inheritance. It's according to his good pleasure, his meticulous, joyful planning. And so what do, we, what do we do with that? I mean, it's a great, great proclamatory sentence. I, and I would love to just leave it there. You are, believer, in Christ. You have an inheritance, both now and and it is assured forever in the future. It's because of his meticulous, joyful plans as God makes a plan and carries it out. That's, that's amazing. But what is it? What do we do? How do I live today? The final point is daily live out the careful plans of God as you stay grounded in Christ Jesus.
daily live out the careful plans of God as you stay grounded in Christ Jesus. This verse, which seems very much just proclamatory in nature, is absolutely pregnant with application. It is just bursting with application in our lives. So we're going to move through this statement now. Daily live out the careful plans of God as you stay grounded in Christ Jesus. So daily, live in faithful obedience. Live in faithful obedience. Psalm chapter 37 says, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. Is that encouragement in face of the Supreme Court? Psalm 37, 23, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Psalm 119, 121 through 128, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. Psalm 139.16, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me as when yet there were none of them. Live in faithful obedience. God's not only planned out, believer, your salvation, but your days. Every good work that you would do, he has planned in advance for you that you may walk in them. And so living in faithful obedience is a natural response to being in Christ. Now, what does this mean? The providence of God is your sustaining power to live the life that he has called you to live. And to go more New Testament with it, out of Psalms, Let's, let's talk about this. Because we are in him, live in him. Because you live in him, because you are in him, live in him. The daily aspect comes out all the more powerful in the New Testament. Because practically, because we're identified with Christ, our lives should be identified with his life, right? 1 John chapter 2, 3-6 and by this we know that we have come to know him. We did a whole series on 1 John about assurance as wrapped up in knowing that you know him. This is how we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. For whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. And by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If you are in him, live in him. Now, I love this, that we are to love as he loved, right? We are to help as he helped. We are to care as he cared, to share as he shared, to sacrifice our own interests and our welfare for the sake of others, just as he did. I love the way that John MacArthur just kind of summarizes it. Like our Lord... We are in the world to lose our lives for others. What does it cost you to live in daily and faithful obedience? What does it cost you? 
I mean, this means that when, when we're serving, for instance, don't mope, don't complain, don't wonder where everyone else is, don't hope that it gets over soon, don't wish other people would pull their weight, don't take all the credit or force your way or lord your authority or get angry or curse people under your breath or talk bad about them when they're not there or get prideful or wish you were somewhere else or wonder what this is costing you or play the family card or the finance and budget card or only show up if everyone else shows up. How often do those things go through our head when we talk about serving? Rather, do. Sacrifice deeply until it hurts. Do. Practice laying your life down. Count others as more deserving and honorable than you. Do. Love deeply. Care tenderly. Exhort passionately. Encourage patiently. Do. Take the bullet. Go the second mile. Work after everyone else is left. Lose the hour of sleep. Miss the game. Skip a meal. Give till nothing is left. Die for the brother. Give until the cost is as deep as what you cost on the cross of Calvary. That's what it means to be in him. We are in this world to lose our lives for others. Finally, I want to encourage you to search the scriptures. Search the scriptures. Ask him for stuff. Ask him for stuff. I'm glad that God knows my thoughts because if he had been sitting only next to me and seen me type that, I would have been fried in a bolt of thunder and lightning. Ask him for stuff. Why? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even think according to the power that is at work within us. Obviously, <laughs> ask him for things that are in according with his will. Right. So learn his will and ask for it. Because we are in him, we should live as him, and we should desire the same things as him. And, and if we're going to do that, we have to search the scriptures. Have to search the scriptures. So how do you learn what his will is? What happens when your kid comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, what's the will of God for my life? What do you say? What happens when a coworker comes up to you and says, I'm just trying to find God's will for my life? How do you respond? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Your mind. Ephesians 6. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Mind, heart. Colossians 4, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God strength for Thessalonians 4 for this is the will of God your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality I mean, look the first three mind heart strength what does that sound like love the Lord your God with all your heart mind strength it's the greatest commandment right what's the will of God abstain from sexual immorality he says it explicitly for this is the will of God those are the verses I like. I don't have to go to the Greek often for that one. This is the will of God. 
your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Get off the computer at night. Just do it. That's the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There's more above that. I just don't have time to read it. There's more after this one in 1 Peter 2. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Hebrews 10, 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. We're warned in Hebrews, there's lots of warnings in Hebrews, but in this one, we're saying that we have need of endurance. How do you get endurance so that you can do the will of God, so that you can get what is promised? Get some energeo. Get that working. Get that working of God in your life. How do you do that? The word is living and active. It equips the believer for every good work. Psalm 62, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. I, for my hope, is in him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. 1 John chapter 2, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're going to live daily in faithful obedience as we do our aspect from the human perspective we're going to talk about even more next week. As God has planned this and we now do our part as he carries it out, we have to know the scriptures. Church, it is Matt and I's earnest plea to you to learn the scriptures. Know your Bible. When people come to you and say, what is the will of God for my life? I can answer. If it's something I'm supposed to be doing daily and I don't know how to define the will of God, I'm probably not doing it daily. We can't do what we don't know. We saw last week that, that knowledge and knowing is such a huge piece of it. Because we have to know if we're going to do. There's certainly the power, the energeo, that pushing forward or putting forth power of God and the Holy Spirit. But we got to know. Ignorance is not an excuse. He has revealed himself to us wholly and perfectly. So believer, if you're here today and you are in him, you have an inheritance. Do the will of God. Do the will of God. It's been planned for you, joyfully. You are a privileged person. The God of the universe has elected you. If you are sitting here today and you are not in him, you don't know that you are in him. I've been preaching the gospel all the way through this. It is glorious in its brilliance and it's magnificent in its scope. Everything that you heard today is for those that are in him. And if you are not in him, then this glorious inheritance is not good as already yours. And it is not waiting for you in death. Rather, your inheritance is in keeping with your unrepentant sin. Your inheritance is eternal death 
and condemnation. But if you would have this inheritance, if you would have this inheritance that, that we've been speaking of today, then confess your sins and repent of them. Just confess your sins and repent of them. Turn from them and trust in Christ as your payment for them. Walk in newness of life that we talked about in Romans 6 earlier. Become a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, church, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. And if you are not in him, if you are not in Christ, if you are not a new creation, listen to this. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, I pray that you would rest secure, that you would rest joyfully, that you would sing praises to God for the mighty work that he has done in putting you in Christ. And then see all of the inheritance that comes with that.